Thanks for tuning back in to another week of The Sporting Post. There's a lot to cover this week, isn't there, Mitch? We've got another round of footy behind us as the prelims took place over the weekend. But beyond football, it's been a big week for the sporting world. We have Formula One, the US Open, all offering up some exciting wins and a lot for us to cover this week. So I think we should get right into it, Mitch. Yeah, absolutely. We've got plenty to cover off this week. Lots of content to, to bring to the audience. Can't wait to get into it. And look, we're starting off, obviously, with the AFL prelim finals taking place last weekend. Unfortunately, it was two pretty one-sided matches this week. Not much excitement to be had in terms of drama on the field. We started off with the Cats taking it up to Melbourne in the first prelim final on Friday night. And look, this was a really one-sided affair. The Demons dominated this match from start to finish. It was just a a really one-sided display. Not really much in it for the fans, unfortunately, unless you were a Melbourne fan, in which case I'm sure you enjoyed the full match from start to finish. Max Gorn had a once-in-a-lifetime performance, kicked five goals for the match, including four in the third term, which is a pretty solid effort for the big man. I mean, he's not known for his goal-kicking prowess, but he certainly showed some on this particular occasion. Yeah, he was incredible and I think as incredible as Melbourne were and their unrivaled form was super exciting to watch. I think no one deserves more credit than their skipper, as you've mentioned. He's a super important leader off field and that definitely shows, but he's just taken his game to another level. He kicked five of the D's 19 goals, which is a super, superb effort. Gorney, but he was not short of any support in the centre. Petrarca, Oliver and Viney all combined for 45 contested possessions and 24 clearances with Petrarca actually hitting the scoreboard himself on three occasions. So it was a really dominant performance by Melbourne and an exciting opportunity for them to win their first premiership in 57 years. Yeah, and I think, you know, we've gone over some of the numbers, contested possessions, disposals, clearances, But I don't think those numbers really give the whole story and they don't do the dominance that Melbourne showed in this match justice. They simply outclassed Geelong in every facet of the game. There was no real point where you could see Geelong even beginning to mount a fight back. There was no point where you saw, oh, yeah, they've got a bit of a run on here, maybe if they can string a couple of goals together. like It just didn't seem to be at any point that you could point to Geelong kind of getting themselves into this contest. It was just Melbourne from start to finish. And I think that the Cats have really, really started to show their age in this final series. I know it's been talked about a lot, but it's it's very, very true. I mean, you start to wonder whether or not their premiership window has has kind of closed. I mean, Joel Selwood just broke the record for most games at the club, which is obviously an incredible effort, but he's broken that record because he's been around for a long time, which means he's old now. And he maybe doesn't have the same impact on the contest that he used to be able to have. And look, Dangerfield and Selwood and Guthrie, they still get their hands on the footy, but I just feel like they don't have the same impact that they used to. And that's that's kind of trickling down to their forward line. I mean, Tom Hawkins and Jeremy Cameron combined have only really had one good game. Tom Hawkins kicked five in the semifinal, but other than that, both of them haven't really had a huge impact on the games. And I think that's just not necessarily their fault. It's just a result of the fact that they're not getting the opportunity to get their hands on the footy and do what they do best, which is kick goals. Yeah, and with that, Melbourne had 10 goal kickers and it showed. They really shared the load among the team. Everyone stepped up when they needed to. A lot of role players and a lot of stars as well in a team, which is also reflective of the Bulldogs. I think that'll be really interesting to see match up next two weeks. But Geelong had five goal kickers. 
Gary Rowan had one disposal and they actually went at 26.2% inside 50, which is terrible. <laughs> I think they, they average around 60% normally. They also took only five marks inside 50 and 57 for the whole game, which is less than half of their average, which just shows credit to Melbourne. I do think they played a super exciting game and proved their point. But that being said, Geelong were just awful to watch. I think they really didn't show up and, as you said, managed to get no grip on their game. No, absolutely not. And look, you've hit the nail on the head, but like you said, we've got to give credit to the Ds. They look in real good shape heading into this grand final. We're going to say they're making our predictions and talking about the grand final for next week. So just stay tuned for that. But they looked really good. And look, the only concern that they really had at all was Stephen May pulled up mm. a bit limp after a marking contest early on in the piece. But he came back out there later on in the match, played for a little while longer before kind of being put on ice. And look, there's no indication from Melbourne or from Stephen himself that he's going to miss the grand final. He's got two weeks now to recover and get himself right. And I think he'll be well and good to go. Yeah, you would hope so. Moving on to the next match, we had Dogs versus Port Adelaide. And if Cats versus Melbourne was boring to watch, so was this one. (laughs) Both Geelong and Port Adelaide seemed to fill in as Witches hats, <laughs> yeah. I think for a Melbourne and Bulldogs training session, it was such a woeful weekend of football. Yeah. But that being said, dogs came out swinging. They've had a hard run on the road, five states in fourteen days, I believe. And I think they really thrive in that backs against the wall, us versus them mentality. So mm. good on them. They dominated from the first bounce. Yeah, Bailey Smith had a very strong performance this week. Backed up his. Pretty remarkable performance, a very clutch performance that he had in the semifinal. Kicked four goals this week to back up his three last week, which was a very solid effort for someone who's not necessarily known for hitting the scoreboard a lot. He, he did a great job of uh, maximizing his impact on the game in that way. And look, Aaron Norton, once again, was an incredible force. He reminds me of a young Jack Rewalt, actually. His ability to leap at the footy and make a play is just absolutely remarkable. He he gets his hands on the footy. He just he jumps at the contest with such almost like reckless abandon. Like he just doesn't care about the consequences of his actions in terms of his own body. He just wants to go at the contest and and make a make an impression and leave his mark on the game. And he does that so incredibly well. And he just times his leaps. He's just an incredible athlete to watch. Yeah, well said, Mitch. I agree. I think he was on fire from the get go. You could just see the intent. From the moment he stepped on the field, and I was just, I loved it. Moving on with the dogs, Bevo backed in Adam Trelaw after he copped a fair bit of scrutiny last week for his semifinals performance. And Bevo backed him in, rightfully so. He stepped up, 13 of his touches led to a dog's score, and he ended up kicking one himself. So that was really exciting. And I'm, yeah, I am really thrilled to see that. I think he's a superb player, and he might have been a bit out of form, but. The media really jumped on that. That being said, Bontem Pally was also left to roam around as he wished. Not sure if it was the players not executing or if Ken Hinckley is more responsible there, but they really paid no respect to Bont, who, you know, we'll talk about it more later, but he's probably tipped to win the Brownlow and the best player in the league right now. Yeah. So Port paid for it, as you'd expect, to kick two goals and he was able to play a big part in the dog's win. 
yeah, it was really and just again a, such a disappointing performance from Port Adelaide. You know, I I honestly went into that game thinking that they might actually be the favourites. I mean, they had home field advantage, right? That, that this should have been their week, this should have been their moment, and they just didn't step up, unfortunately. At the same time, I also think that people kind of because a lot of people were tipping Port to win. I think a lot of people lost sight of the fact that for most of the season. The Western Bulldogs were a top four team. Yeah. They fell out of the top four very late in the season yeah. because a couple of results didn't quite go their way. They didn't they kind of limped into the finals, not in the best shape. But there's they've been a top four team and they've shown that they're a top four team for the vast majority of the season. So I don't think it should really come as a surprise that they're playing this well mm. at this point. And I think a lot of people have maybe been caught off guard when I don't think they should have been. <laughs> and on the other side of that, I think people have forgotten that. Port have had a pretty rocky season and they haven't performed well against top four or top eight sides this this year either. So I agree with you. I think there was a bit of delusion with the way both teams ended that season and mm. I think it put Port in a better position than they should have been. Yeah. Anyway, enough talking about footy. We've got plenty more footy to cover next week when we have our grand final special. So again, stay tuned for that one next week. Should be a great show. <laughs> We do want to move on now to the F1 and Daniel Ricciardo, the Aussie winning the Italian Grand Prix in Monza last week. It ended a 1,204-day drought for him winning a race in Formula 1. He led the race from start to finish, started in pole position and finished in pole position, which was a very, very impressive effort to, to do that kind of thing. It's not easy to lead the pack the whole way. But he managed to do it. He finished 1.7 seconds ahead of his teammate, Lando Norris, and just under five seconds ahead of Mercedes's Valtteri Bottas. Hopefully I pronounced that correctly. I don't know if I did. <laughs> but uh, Bottas also had a very solid performance. He finished third despite starting last. So he was right at the back of the queue to race and ended up all the way up on the podium, which is a very solid effort. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a really exciting opportunity for McLaren it was their first one to finish since 2010 and they've had a rocky couple years but it's good to see both McLaren and Daniel Ricciardo get back on track in less positive news there was a collision between Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen on lap 26 so I believe Max Verstappen tried to come up on the inside of a turn and obviously made contact with the Mercedes driver and Hamilton's vehicle actually ended up beneath the Red Bull, which is super concerning. Luckily, they're all okay. Hamilton ended up publicly talking about how it's such a reminder that it is such a dangerous sport and you tend to forget that sometimes. I mean, we've had so many famous incidents like that. Obviously, people will remember Ed and Senna died in a race uh, many years ago and that's happened before. Mm-hmm. And people forget, yeah, they, these people, are these guys are driving at, what, 250 k's an hour uh, in super lightweight vehicles that are not built to be bumped around. It's crazy. And to crash. I mean, obviously, they prepared for that kind of thing. But regardless of how good your vehicle is, if you're crashing at 200 k's an hour plus, there's a very good chance you're going to not walk away from that unscathed. So we're very, very thankful that that neither of those guys were injured seriously as a result of the incident. That's for sure. Anyway, moving along, we've got the US Open to talk about as well in the tennis. Uh, the women's competition was very interesting this this year, actually. Naomi Osaka, who would have obviously been the hometown favorite to come away and win, uh, she was knocked out in round three after losing to 19-year-old Canadian Layla Fernandez. 
And it ended up being a battle of two very young guns in the final. It was 18-year-old Emma Raducanu, hopefully I pronounced that one correctly, <laughs> defeating Layla Fernandez in the final. So again, two really young players, younger than neither of us, coming away, finishing first and second in that tournament. So Raducanu won both sets, 6-4, 6-3. And it was a two-hour match. And it was a very interesting display, actually, to see two such young figures on the on the big stage in such a major tournament was was really quite something to watch. Yeah, both should be super proud of their achievements, winner or not. That being said, it was a great game, a really classy performance from the both of them, considering their age. I did want to touch on Emma Raducanu's incredible and rushed journey, actually, Mitch. So three months ago, she was just a student waiting for her A-level results, so equivalent to our VCE results here. And she managed to reach the last 16 at Wimbledon, then had 10 straight matches to qualify for the main draw at the US Open, being ranked 150th. And then, as we know, she's gone all the way to become the first British woman to win a Grand Slam since 1977. It's astonishing and it's something we've never seen before. So to go from 150th at 18 years old to ranked, I think she's 23rd now, and collect a quiet... $3.4 million payout for her win (laughs) is just incredible and it's such a good story to have in this this day and age, some excitement for us Melburnians. Yeah, like you've really summed it up well there. It's a pretty incredible performance and it's the stuff that we watch sport for. We watch sport for these kind of moments and for these kind of stories. Anyway, moving along to the men's competition, it was two heavyweights moving away from kind of two young guns, two big names in the men's comp, in the men's draw. Daniel Medvedev took out Novak Djokovic in straight sets to win the men's final, 6-4, 6-4, 6-4. It was a rematch of the Australian Open final that saw Djokovic win on that occasion against Medvedev, again in straight sets. So kind of a reversal of fate in this one. Unfortunately for the Joker, he was trying to go for a calendar year Grand Slam, something that hasn't been done since Rod Laver many, many years ago, at least in the men's draw. But he wasn't able to do it. Unfortunately for him, he was outclassed on the day by the younger and more spry, I guess you could say, Medvedev. He was very, very impressive in this match. What were your thoughts on that one? Yeah, I'll get you there. Did you see your celebration, by the way, Mitch? Yeah, it was it was pretty funny. Yeah, it's dead fish. I think people were so confused, <laughs> including myself. I'm not a FIFA player, but I thought it was, yeah, as you said, a really heavyweight performance from the two, contrasting the women's and super disappointing for Djokovic. I did think he touched on that, but he kind of expressed a sense of relief that it was over. On the other side, Dylan Olcott, our Aussie, defeated a Dutchman in the final. So he's the first man to win all four Grand Slams and a Paralympic gold in the same year, which is phenomenal. Golden Slam. It's incredible. We should, we should be getting around him more. I feel like people aren't, aren't kind of acknowledging what an incredible athlete he's been for us. And he's someone that deserves enormous respect. He's one of the, I mean, he's proven it now <laughs> beyond a shadow of a doubt. He's the best wheelchair tennis player in the world. don't think there's any question about that at this point. And I think our Aussies need to get around him a bit more because he is quite an incredible athlete. Yeah, I agree. Speaking of struggles and whatnot, I know he touched on he might be retiring and he loves to speak about his journey of, I think he quoted, like he hated himself so much. He hated his disability. He didn't want to be there anymore. And he found tennis and changed his life. Going back to Naomi Osaka, she did have an emotional 
press conference following her loss to Fernandez. And I just wanted to mention that I think it's super important that she spoke up so candidly and bravely as she did. She's such an icon of tennis at the moment and of women's sport, but she just expressed that, you know, it's a tough time to be an athlete. And I know, Mitch, you could resonate with this, but you can't even imagine the emotional and mental toll it would take not only the pressure of winning, but in this era of social media, it just kind of bleeds into every aspect of your life, which is a really down way to end the US Open. <laughs> but that being said, Mitch, you love the NFL. Big fan. And I know you wanted to touch on <laughs> that season there. <laughs> Glad you're, you're, you're humoring me for a little while, Kat. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the NFL season kicked off last weekend. So we had Tom Brady's Tampa Bay Buccaneers overcoming Dak Prescott and the Dallas Cowboys in the first match of the new season. But honestly, for this year, I really like the Kansas City Chiefs to overcome their demons and reach the pinnacle once again. They got to the top of the heap two seasons ago and returned to the Super Bowl last year only to be beaten by Tom Brady and the Bucks. But this year, I mean, they still have someone who I believe is the best player in the competition in their quarterback, Patrick Mahomes, and they have one of the best and most talented receiving cores in the league led by Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey. And this is something that you'll be able to resonate with Kat as well. They've had a lot of consistency in their roster. Pretty much all of their key players from the past two seasons have returned this year. They haven't had a lot of uh, turnover in their roster. They've kept their core players together. And this is something that we can we can talk about in all sports. Consistency and being able to go back to and know guys that know the game plan, know what they have to do, know their role week in, week out. That is important in every sport, and I think that, that that kind of consistency and that knowledge of one another's strengths and weaknesses that the Chiefs have is going to ultimately get them over the line this year. Yeah, and with that, Mitch, I'd love to get your opinion, not to bring it back to AFL. We definitely will get back to NFL. <laughs> but the Dogs are a team that haven't had much consistency with their list. You know, they brought in Mitch Hannon for Cody Waitman. I don't know. I just think... He slotted in well, clearly. He kicked three. Yeah. Um, but what are your thoughts on that? I just think it's so interesting to see, one, what Bevo will do for the grand final, but how different teams, obviously, you need your core group. You need mm. that solid foundation that know the game plan, are a steady force no matter what, week in and week out. Yeah, I think it's a fair point. And I think that, I mean, like what you said, I mean, they, they still have that core group of players like Bontempelli, for instance, that have been around the club for so long, know what, what Bevo expects of them know what they can bring to the table each week. And I think that ultimately what you need if you want to be successful is, yes, that consistency like what I talked about, but you still have to stay ahead of the curve as well. And that often means bringing in talent that's going to, I guess, complement the play style that you've already that you've already developed. So Cody Waitman being an example, he, he can complement Aaron Norton up forward and be that second key forward that they need if they want if they want to be successful and if they want to kick a lot of goals, which is, at the end of the day is what you need to do to win AFL games. But yeah, you're 100% right. I think it is it, there is a balance there that's to be had between consistency and staying ahead of the curve. Mm. And I think that, look, again, touching on footy, I think that's something that Geelong hasn't quite managed, unfortunately. I think they've, they've stuck with a lot of their older group for maybe longer than they needed to. And look, they did bring in Jeremy Cameron a season ago, but... He's 28. He's, he's still old, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I just don't think that they've evolved and they haven't changed their game style to fit the current mm. 
style of play. I think they want to play the way my my Hawks played back That's true. last decade when we won three premierships. That we we were so focused on dominating possession, kicking the ball around, chipping it around, building up a methodical drive down the field to kick a goal. Whereas now, I mean, the Tigers kind of revolutionised the game and made it so much more like rugby. It's it's often something that I that I think about and, and notice when I'm watching when I was watching the Tigers play when they were at their best, is it was so much just moving the ball forward. It didn't even have to be in their possession. If they kept moving the ball closer and closer to their goal, mm. they could they could get a chance out of it. So I think Geelong is kind of stuck in a in a style of play that doesn't really fit what what's kind of going on in the AFL community at the moment. And I don't know if it's something that they can really fix with their current group. I mean, I don't think their players are really designed for maybe that type of play anymore. So it's going to be interesting to see what they do there. Yeah, 100%. But back to NFL. (laughs) (laughs) We've had enough AFL talk over the past couple episodes. Don Brady, you were talking about. I'm not an NFL person, I will say. But I know you and I were talking about how old he is <laughs> before. And that just is incredible. Like the the toll it would take on your body yeah. to maintain that kind of performance. Yeah. Just some great stories in sport at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean he's he's an incredible athlete and he's his teammates always talk about the kind of dedication that he has to his craft. And you know, after over twenty years and seven Super Bowl wins. You think that that hunger and that desire to keep winning might have faded a little bit, but people keep telling. Like he was quoted once as saying, "Someone asked him, okay, which out of your Super Bowl wins is your favorite?" And he said, "The next one." Wow! Right, so that's his mentality. <laughs> you see what I mean? Like he's always focused. He's ne- he's never satisfied, even in spite of the fact that he's almost won twice as many Super Bowls as as Joe Montana or any other iconic NFL player. He's still out there looking to win another one. It could have been, he could have moved away because he, he obviously moved on from the New England Patriots and went for, to Tampa Bay for one year and won. Mm. That could have been a mic drop moment. He could have left his, his old team, won a championship and then walked out on a high. But no, he's back and he's trying to win it again. And it is really incredible. It's a fascinating story and he's really someone who I think a lot of sports athletes can look up to across the world. Yeah, wow. Well, Mitch, I've had a blast talking about sport this episode. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. And next week we will have a bit more of an AFL focus with the grand final and the brown to sum up. So can't wait for that. But see you, everyone. Thanks, Mitch, for joining me this week. Always a pleasure, Kat. Take care. Mm-hmm.